Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 130. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. <laughs> well, look at what's happened eh, to us this week. Wow. Anybody doesn't know, the Starship Sova has been nominated for a Hugo Award. First time ever in the history of the Hugo Awards has a podcast been nominated. How does that make me feel? <laughs> Honestly, I am 20 feet tall. I'm six foot, nearly six four in normal kind of high, but by God, I'm a kind of tall giant at the minute, walking tall. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show then, <laughs> my excitement kind of just started like giggling. We have the editorial, we are nominated for a Hugo by young fella called Tony C. Smith. Short fiction comes from William F. Wu. We have a fact article by Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. We have the Starships over Interrogations, John Kessel's taking the 15 questions. Then we have John Kessel's main fiction, Every Angel is Terrifying. And it just so happens that it's John Kessel Interrogations and John Kessel main fiction. That won't happen any most times, mind you, but I just kind of realised I could marry them two up, so that's why we've got that. Then we have a little fact article, transcriber editorial by Diane Severson. Just to give you a little heads up with the transcriber project. That is this week's Oral Delights. I hope you will stick around. So we'll jump straight in with the editorial. And like I say, this is just me freewheeling, just giving some a few thoughts and a few kind of thank yous. You know, first off, thank you everybody that kind of voted and, and kind of just mentioned Starship Sofa on the blogs everywhere, do you know, and just got the name Starship Sofa about, do you know what I mean, I, God, it's just, it's, it is really quite staggering, do you know what I mean, I'm like, it's, I don't think actually it, it's sunk in for me, just, it's more the fact that we are the first podcast, do you know what I mean, little old Starship Sofa, do you know what I mean, the old girl there, she, she's dusted herself down, and she's now stand up there with all, you know, all them icons and hero, heroes of mine, you know what I mean, in this award, this is why, or this is when, you know, me and Kieran, we first kicked off and used to do this show, we used to look towards these awards, you know, and I th- I'm sure we even did a Hugo show, do you know what I mean, and now, bloody hell, Starship Sova's getting ourselves nominated for a Hugo, and to be quite honest, it could end, it could end now, do you know what I mean, I'm happy as Larry, do you know what I mean, that was kind of such a big feat to get a podcast that's, you know, no one knows kind of podcasts were kind of eligible, you know, you've got the likes of, um, um, 
are you sure we've been nominated? Um, you know, you've got the likes of Escape Pod. Do you know, like thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners there. You know, and it just. Oh, I mean, hopefully now, you know, Starship Sofa's kind of opened the floodgates and you, you've got the likes of Escape Pod. You've got Mer Lafferty's kind of podcasts coming on there and they'll get in there now. I just hope that's the case. Do you know what I mean? But what I'm kind of more excited about is we were the first. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, a big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis. It was Amy that kind of brought it to, to my attention. Do you know what I mean? Like this like kind of far off goals, you know, and just kind of mentioned it on the forum, just as a, a passing, you know, a kind of passing comment. And then, you know, I've got to thank Matthew Sanborn Smith, Larry Santuru, Mer Lafferty, Jason Sanford, and for everyone that kind of just helps, you know, and even kind of in some ways protected the sofa. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes when we kind of started getting the name out, there was a lot of people, you know, saying it wasn't a fanzine, this, it wasn't that, and there was a lot of flack on some certain websites, you know, and some certain people were kind of, just addition the the sofa and you know what I mean it was just nice to get like support and you know friendship from everyone just going to support the starship sofa and just say listen man you know what I mean get a life <laughs> so thank you for that like I say thank you everyone that just you know got got down and helped to get to get this far do you know what I mean if if it goes further, do you know what I mean? We'll just have to wait and see, do you know what I mean? By God, I'll try now. Do you know what I mean? The, the kind of the flames being lit at both ends. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what, you know, I'm going to just kind of sit back and just let let things go. Or I really don't know. Like I say, I'm still high as a kite from this just getting nominated. Do you know what I mean? That's 50 years time, there might be another, some sort of medium that kind of, Fans of science fiction are saying, remember, even podcasts were nominated for a Hugo. That would make no idea. Well, there you go. So if you listen to last week's show, you actually hear we did, you know, a kind of show where we watched them coming live out and we kind of announced the winner. So if you don't know who's up there for Hugo Awards for the nominations, have a listen to that show. Very emotional time, and it still is. Do you know what I mean? And what's really is quite strange, when I'm sitting in front of my desk, you know, I'm answering emails, and it's like, you know, well, congratulations, Tony. Yes, yes, yes. Lovely. You know, I'm kind of, so like say, 30 foot tall. And then, you know, I switch off the computer. Well, I actually don't, never, ever switch the computers off. But as soon as I, you know, get back into the real world, you know, <laughs> nobody knows, and I'm just kind of taking the kids to school and, you know... I've been planting potatoes in the allotment <laughs> back in the real world, Tony. So, yes, honestly, a big, big thank you. So we'll get in with some short fiction. This is William F. Wu's Hong's Bluff. William F. Wu was born in 1951 in Missouri. He is a Chinese-American science fiction author... He published his first story in 1977. Since then, he's written 13 novels, a collection of short stories, and a scholarly work. He has written novels using the three laws of robotics invented by Isaac Asimovs, including the entire Robots in Time series and two entries in the Robot series. Nominated five times for the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Award, William F. Wu has published dozens of short stories which have appeared in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Omi, and best-selling 1996 Star Wars Tales from Jabba's Palace. His most acclaimed book, 
Hong on the Range was chosen for the Wilson Library's Bulletin's list of science fiction's books too good to miss and was a selection for the American Library Association list of best books for young people. The New York Public Library's recommended books for teenage and was also a young adult editor's choice by Booklist magazine. The novel is based on Wu's Hugo and Nebula Award nominee Hong's Bluff, which is this story here, which first appeared in the Omi magazine. It is narrated by... Patrick Scott. Patrick Scott is a filmmaker living in Venice Beach, California. You can find out more about Patrick at heypscott.com. Now, Patrick assures me when you go there, if you go there now, you will see Patrick's website. When I went there a few days ago, it was just a domain name landing, but he assures me the website will be up. So please, just for that, check out heypscott.com. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... Hong's Bluff by William F. Wu No one living had ever seen Hong without the big chain on his neck. No one had ever maneuvered him into the street when he didn't want to go or beaten him at a game of cards, either. Oh, he had been known to lose a hand or two, and once, even a foot, but never an eyeball or a new joint. He was lean, wiry, and stainless. His arms were gooseneck molydendum steel, one of which he won, I hear, by bluffing salt morass and a folding with three of a kind to Hong's nine high. Grudged the smiths as he charged a hundred and twelve thousand to make the left one, and Hong paid in cash. This was the day after Hong faced down red-eared Rick in the street and made him cough up the take from his last bank job all over the ground. Hong had one silver eye and one gray eye, and they say he was harder to stare down than a one-eyed flounder. Since Hong was my cousin, I had been acquainted with him for many years, but he was less than friendly. He usually ignored me. The last time I saw him was one day at the Silver Transistor Saloon. He stepped inside the swinging doors, and as he surveyed the crowd, I surveyed him. Hong's eyes were a perpetual squint and a face the color of Kansas wheat. His reputation as a gambler and a never-miss gun was aided by the villain's mustache he twirled, though everyone swore he only sharked professionals. A limber stride carried him to one of the game tables, reminded me of how he'd had two ball-joint knees put in after he shot them clean out of collapsible Jed Foley's legs, according to rumor, anyway. Shooting a lawyer in Arizona won Hong an avocado waist with a 100-degree turning arc. It was fat, green, and high in cholesterol. His pride and joy, though, was a pair of black boots. They were clear and glassy like obsidian. According to Sally Flash, the saloony, they were obsidian. And they weren't boots, either. They were his feet. No one knew for sure. Hackles, my superior at the stable, says Hong bluffed a king high hand over none other than sweetheart Kurt and Dallas, winning the obsidian feet over queens and nines. Incredible. Shouts went up from one of the games and a shot was fired. When the excitement died, Hong sauntered over to take the place of the dead player. I sidled over to Sally Flash at a nearby table and stood there a while. She didn't like me because Hong ignored me, and she left in disgust. 
Her seat, though, was worth having because our local legend Cicero Yang used to watch pharaoh players from the seat before he moved on to other parts. I used to shine his boots and buckles for him while he played, and I could see from that angle that he'd arranged four mirrors and two pitchers on the walls so that he could see every hand on the table. When Cicero hit the trail, I inherited his seat. The other fellows tolerated me, being Cicero's personal boot and buckle polisher. No one else ever sat there. They didn't want to risk being found in Cicero Yank's chair just in case he came back. So when Hong sat at the table for poker, I had a ringside seat. Hong sat down between Isotope John and Fred without a surname. Tom Clanger was the only other player. I was allowed to observe. Isotope John was dealing. He couldn't use a boot polisher. He had caterpillar treads instead of feet. I hated him, never having forgotten the time he hornswoggled me out of a brand new set of bellows at the stable. I'd have been going to sell them to Grudge the Smith, but Isotope John talked me into wagering them against his new four-gallon purple hat. I was betting that he couldn't keep standing if I set the spare anvil on top of his head. Well, he cheated as usual, and it turned out that he had a hydraulic diffuser under the big hat. When I set the anvil on his head, little legs shot out from under the hat and braced themselves against the wall, holding up the anvil where he stood in the corner of the stable. He just grinned and said, You're a sucker, Louie Hong. Not like the Hong. And he took my bellows. Now Isotope John nodded at Hong and started tossing cards, saying, I heard about your lucky chain, Mr. Hong. They say you've never missed with your gun or lost a set of cards since the railroad slavers put that chain around your neck. He dealt with a special wheel-fingered hand mail-ordered from St. Louis. They say, Hong agreed, looking at his cards, a pair of fours. He unlaced a gun from one holster. Ten dollars, said Fred without a surname. The glass over a painting behind him reflected a king-high hand. Yin, said Isotope John. Sally Flash was looking over his shoulder now, and I couldn't see the mirror behind him. I figured she knew about the mirror system, too, having been tight with Cicero Yang once. Raise ten, said Hong. He yawned and looked with a bored expression at Sally Flash. Everyone stayed. One card, said Fred. Behind Isotope John, Sally Flash casually began to fiddle with the front of her dress. I turned away and just happened to catch Isotope John dealing from the bottom of the deck to Fred without a surname. Instantly, Tommy Clanger leaped up and yelled, I saw that! He went for a gun, but Isotope John leaned to one side, flipped out his pistol, and blew Tommy Clanger away like a mosquito. Tommy's gun went off, though, and grazed Isotope John on the neck. Accused me of cheating said Isotope John. A couple of bare wires stuck out of his neck. I recalled hearing Hackle say that the crowd in Wichita once tried to lynch Isotope John and that he had put in a slinky spring as a precaution against a backlash. John, complained Fred, two hands and that's two players you shot. Getting to be right noisy playing with you. Isotope John glared. Dealer takes none. Fred shrugged and bet. Ten. Isotope John and Hong put in their money. Hong called and lost to a pair of eights. Well, Isotope John grinned and swept his winnings. Your chain wearing out, Hong? Luck weakening? Luck never weakens, said Hong. Deal.
Sally Flash wandered away, and when I saw the hand isotope John dealt himself, I couldn't believe his audacity. One way or another, he'd given himself jacks and tens before the draw, most likely planning a full house. Fred held a nine high and folded, but when I saw Hong's hand, four queens, I thought I would faint from glee. Of course, he would have a hard time pulling off one of his patented bluffs when he had the best hand at the table. It had to be that fancy luck of his. I'd kept a clear eye on him every moment, and he never once made a funny move. But then, if Isotope John was cheating and in control, he had dealt Hong his hand on purpose. Auntie's low for a lucky jerk like you, said Isotope John. I hear you got that luck with your guns, too. Hong raised an eyebrow and his gray eye glinted. So here's a real bet for you. If I win, you shoot it out with me. And now I understood. Isotope John had a good hand and would make it better when Hong beat him with an impossible four queens. Isotope John could call him into the street anyway for cheating. He apparently really wanted to shoot it out with Hong. Right, said Hong. Give me two cards. Isotope John and I both started as Hong tossed down a five and a queen. Isotope John's astonishment was proof that he had dealt Hong four queens on purpose. His worry now? Twice in two hands he'd cheated so clumsily as to be caught. What if he'd followed up again and Hong hadn't received the four queens? After all, he'd just discarded one, which would be untactful if he was holding three more. Hong twirled his villain's mustache and kept those squinty eyes on Isotope John. He knew something was up. Most likely he wasn't sure what. I figured he was doing the unexpected out of sheer orneriness and suspicion. He wasn't scared of gunfights. Two, squeaked Isotope John. The doubt in his voice told Hong all he had to know. I'm on to you now, said Hong with a grin. Isotope John went for his gun. Hong's snake oil arms flew up with his pistols on the ends, and Isotope John checked himself with his gun still aimed downward. He managed a weak smile. Suddenly Hong spat and hit the wires protruding from that neck wound. Sparks flew, smoke fizzled, and Isotope John's gun went off, shattering an obsidian foot. Hey, said Hong, annoyed, looking at his stump. At least you didn't bluff me with them cards, panted Isotope John, swatting his neck. That's your specialty, ain't it? He holstered his gun. Serves you right. I did bluff you, said Hong, flipping open the cylinders of his guns. No bullets. I haven't loaded a gun for four and a half years now. Isotope John leaped up, furious. I'll be outside. You can load them or don't. I'll draw anyway. He turned to go, but stopped at Hong's voice. No, you won't. You'll be scared, too. I'll stare with my one gray eye and one silver. You'll shake. I'll swivel my hips on the avocado waist, and you'll get dizzy. My springy arms will wave every which way, and you'll wonder if you're about to shoot an unarmed man, in which case I'd win. On the other hand, if you don't shoot, I might. Hong tugged at his villain's mustache, and Isotope John pushed through the crowd, muttering. At that, I jumped up and ran like lightning on wheels for the stable. Moments later, Isotope John and Hong faced each other in the dusty street outside. 
Isotope John swayed impatiently from one caterpillar tread to the other, stroking the edge of his jeans with the wheel fingers on his card hand. I wasn't there, but at the saloon window, Sally Flash shoved a three-yuang piece into the slow-mo camera and recorded the whole thing so we could all see it later. Hong's black hair fluttered in the slight breeze and the sunlight shone evilly off that silver eye. His narrow mustache quivered and the snake-like arms bounced in readiness over twin gun handles. Down the way, Isotope John's trigger finger scratched nervously at his thumb and his card player's eyes searched Hong's tight smile and slightly swiveling hips for an indication of whether or not his guns were loaded. In the meantime, I was thundering up the stairs of the saloon like greased pigs trying to make the fourth-floor balcony, but the thing I carried was heavy. The camera zoomed in on Isotope John's face. His eyebrows were tense and unbalanced. His eyes went from eager to hesitant to eager as he measured the glory of outshooting Hong against the ignominy of killing him unarmed. Suddenly he flashed his teeth and one hand dipped for his gun. Hong's ball joint knees spun in two directions. He sank and swayed, sending his arms out and around like tentacles, his obsidian stump shining in the dust. He leveled the two gun barrels, and the gray eye fogged sternly. But Isotope John's gun was already level. He squinted, and his circuits began to fill with that impulse that would run down his arm to the trigger. For another millisec, he hesitated. At that moment, I appeared on the balcony, leaning over Isotope John. And as Hong's triggers clicked on empty chambers, I dropped my anvil four flights down on Isotope John's head. Some good that hydraulic what's a fire did now. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but rivets and screws splattered out all across the dirt of the street, springy and bouncing. Then the recording went blank. As for me, well, I never wore a big chain on my neck. I never stood out in the street or played cards either. But that afternoon, my cousin lifted his gaze with one silver eye and one gray one and looked at me up on the balcony. He twirled his villain's mustache with his left hand, peering with that perpetual squint. For a long moment, he studied me sternly, and I let my stupid grin freeze and die. Then, with a wink and a faint chuckle, that old bluffer saluted me, pivoted, and sauntered back inside the saloon. There you go. Hopefully we'll get some more stories by William. Don't forget, copyright is William F. Wu. Big thank you to William for that. And don't forget, Patrick Scott, excellent narration. Patrick, thanks so much. Next up, we have Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Now, if you notice on the, just a little kind of snippet here, on the website, I always call it looking back at science fiction history because I can never spell genre. <laughs> every One of them words, every time it gets me. So, looking back at genre history by Amy H. Sturgis. And Amy, again, a big, big thank you for all the help you've done. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to remember a gentleman who recently passed away on February 11, 2010. His name was David Store Unwin. 
If you don't remember that name on the spine of any of your science fiction books, don't be alarmed. He actually wrote under a pseudonym, and I'd like to talk about why he is important to genre history. But in fact, David Store Unwin's entire family is important to genre history, and so to tell his story, I need to first step back and tell the story of his father, his cousin, his brother. Unwin's father was Sir Stanley Unwin. He was born in 1884 and died in 1968. He was the British publisher who founded George Allen and Unwin House in 1914. This publishing house, which of course is still in operation today, published controversial authors like Mahatma Gandhi and Bertrand Russell. But to genre fans like you and me. The publishing house is best known for publishing *The Hobbit* and *The Lord of the Rings*. In fact, there's a rather good story behind that. When Stanley Unwin was considering *The Hobbit*, he gave the manuscript to his son Rainer Stevens Unwin, who was born in 1925 and died in 2000. At the time, Rainer was 10 years old, and Stanley Unwin asked his son if he would. Read *The Hobbit* and write a written report giving his opinion as to whether or not it should be published. He was paid an entire shilling for his efforts, and so Rainer read *The Hobbit* and quite liked it. And he wrote his report, which is as follows: Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in his hobbit hole and never went for adventures. At last, Gandalf the Wizard and his dwarves persuaded him to go. He had a very exciting time fighting goblins and wargs. At last, they get to the Lonely Mountain. Smog, the dragon who guards it, is killed, and after a terrific battle with the goblins, he returned home rich. This book, with the help of maps, does not need any illustrations. It is good and should appeal to all children between the ages of five and nine. Note the bit of superiority there. He was ten, and it should appeal to children between the ages of five and nine. Stanley Unwin took his son's advice and published *The Hobbit*. Tolkien was seventeen years in the making of *The Lord of the Rings*, and by that time, Rainer Unwin was working for his father.、Uh, he would later sort of inherit the family business of publishing, and once again, Rainer was called on to give his thoughts on the work once he'd read the manuscript. And he read *The Lord of the Rings* and quite liked it, but he told his father. He thought that if they published it,、uh, the company would probably lose money. In fact, he was quite specific. He thought they would lose at least a thousand pounds. However, it was a work of genius. His father replied that publishing a work of genius was worth losing a thousand pounds. What an amazing reply! Isn't that great? And so, *The Lord of the Rings* was published. But as you probably guessed, they didn't lose money. Sir Stanley Unwin's niece, the cousin of David and Rainer Unwin, was Ursula Moray Williams, who was born in 1911 and died in 2006. She was an English author of more than 70 books. Yes, I said 70, not 17 books for young readers. Perhaps her most popular was *Adventures of the Little Wooden Horse*. But a number of them had a fantastical flavor to them, with titles such as "The Moon Ball" and "Castle Merlin." 
So, obviously, David Store Unwin, the older son of Sir Stanley Unwin, older brother to Rainer Unwin, came from quite the literary family. He started out his adulthood working for his father in the family business, but it turned out that he was more inclined to write books than to publish them. He wrote a couple of adult novels under his own name, but they didn't really meet with the success that he was hoping for. And so he turned to writing fiction for young readers. He chose the name David Severn, Severn being a family name, as a pseudonym. He started out by writing a couple of series, the Crusoe series and the Warner series, both of which were sort of in the camping and tramping adventure storyline. Each series included a quintet of books. These were very successful, and they were credited with helping young readers deal with the World War II period and its immediate aftermath. But soon, David Severn's work took on a much more fantastic flavor. Several of his works dealt with time travel. For example, Dream Gold in 1949 was a story based on the premise of ESP, extrasensory perception, in that two boys shared their dreams. Their dreams ultimately send them back three centuries to a time of piracy. As I'm sure you can imagine, the adventure story from there on out pretty much wrote itself. Although it is noteworthy that one of the main characters ultimately is killed. Drumbeats in 1953 took its young characters back to Africa in 1935. The adventures they had there end up having serious repercussions for their present-day time period. Foxy Boy, which was published in 1959, dealt with a wild child who was raised by foxes. Human men hunted the child for sport. In The Girl in the Grove, which was published in 1974, the ghost acts as a kind of lens for the young protagonist to see back into the past of his family. In 1977, his book The Wishing Bone was published, which was a kind of three wishes fantasy. All in all, he published over 30 novels for young readers, many of which had science fiction and fantasy elements. The most important of these, I would argue, at least the most significant in terms of the history of the genre, was The Future Took Us, which was published in 1957. It's important to genre history because it's one of the very first science fiction novels for young readers that described a post-Holocaust theocratic dystopia. And in this, it set the model for many young adult dystopias to come. It was a pioneering work. Here's the blurb from the book flap. Two schoolboys are mysteriously snatched away from their headmaster's study and transported into the future. They eventually discover that it is the year A.D. 3000, but civilization has come to an end. The Britain they knew has been ravaged by a vast explosion, and its people appear to have reverted to a primitive life. But, as the boys make their dangerous way through wild forests towards Unden 
as London is now called. Sinister monk-like figures appear who seem to have absolute power over the populace. The boys are horrified to witness a terrible execution and afterwards penetrate into a strange underground city from which mathematicians seek to rule the world. How the boys help to overcome the dictators and how they, or one of them, gets back to his own time makes a breathtaking and at the same time admirably logical adventure story which will enthrall both boys and girls from 11 onwards. Pretty interesting stuff, huh? One of the great twists in this story is that the holy text, the text that really sets the order for the church/state is a mathematics textbook, and not just any mathematics textbook, but the textbook that's written by the young protagonist's headmaster and teacher. I don't know about you, but the idea of a futuristic civilization based on the study of really worship of my former math teacher when I was a child I'm talking about you Mrs. Phillips is pretty much as dystopian as it gets here's the description from the novel when the two young protagonists discover exactly what's going on together dick muttering to himself indignantly about mumbo jumbo we mounted to the platform beneath the transparent shell we discovered lay an open book couched as if it were a crown upon a cushion of purple and gold the book was old the pages were faded and badly stained brittle and yellow with age the print on the title page was barely legible yet there was something about the balance of the layout that was curiously disturbingly familiar with a shock of cold astonishment I realized that I did not have to read the words that were printed there. I already knew them by heart. The Merton series of school texts, Elementary Mathematics by Dr. Adrian Perry. David Unwin published one last book under his own name, 50 Years with Father, in 1982. An autobiographical account of his life and relationship with his famous father. David Store Unwin, also known as David Severn, died at the age of 91 on February 11, 2010. When his family and friends gathered to remember a man who spent a good deal of his life telling stories to young people, they remembered his gentle and kind personality by releasing doves from a basket. As he has now followed his father, his younger brother, and his cousin, David Store Unwin's passing marks in a sense an end of an era, one that I think we should recognize for its impact on the genre. And particularly David Unwin's, that is David Severn's role in entertaining young readers, introducing them to the tropes of science fiction and fantasy, and perhaps creating lifelong genre fans. I hope you've enjoyed this look back into genre history. I look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you. Hey, well, thank you very much, Amy. So we have Starship Sova's interrogations. The fifteen questions are put to John Kessel. John Kessel, hello. 
Hello, Tony. Are you a science fiction writer? Huh. Well, uh, I think I'm a writer who writes science fiction. Um, I, I, uh, I've always loved science fiction, but, uh, um, and I think I am a science fiction writer, but uh, the world uh, uh, tends to want to put you in a single box, and I think I would like to escape it. I'd like to be in more than one box rather than just the, the science fiction box. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I uh, grew up in a, a working class uh, uh, family of immigrants in uh, Buffalo, New York. Um, and I went to the public schools, uh, public schools, uh, the U.S. version of public schools, which means uh, the, the state schools. And uh, uh, I was a, a very serious uh, Catholic as a boy. I went to Catholic schools for a while. And... Uh, uh, but then I, when I went to the public schools, I sort of fell away from, from the church. Uh, I was pretty alienated as an adolescent, as many science fiction people have been. Uh, but I went to the university to study astronomy, and I ended up majoring in physics and English. Uh, I decided that I wasn't going to be any great scientist. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Kansas, and I studied uh, writing under James Gunn, a science fiction writer who's taught there for many, many years. He just was made a grandmaster of the SFWA a couple of years ago. So, uh, so he was very helpful to me. And while I was there, I met, uh, met a lot of science fiction writers. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? Well, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't read it. I, I loved it from the time I was a kid. Uh, the thing I loved was uh, the escape, uh, the wonders of the future. I read uh, uh, public library books, and then, then I found uh, paperback books and science fiction magazines in the early 1960s. Um, and then when I was older in college, I, I discovered fandom. And I went to my first science fiction convention, the World Science Fiction Convention, in 1969. And uh, I started, with my best friend, I started a fanzine. I went to conventions. I was very serious about being a fan. And then uh, at the same time, I was trying to be a writer while I was in graduate school studying literature. And, and uh, uh, so that, that was sort of my, my thumbnail history uh, of getting started in SF. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Uh, it would be hard for me to pick one, but there's several. I, I loved uh, uh, Alfred Bester and Robert Sheckley when I was young. And uh, I don't write like Bester, but I think I do write a little like Sheckley. Also, Vonnegut. I like the satirical stuff. I like Phil K. Dick, uh, Thomas Dish, Urs Ursula Le Guin. Those are all big names for me when I was, was growing up. Uh, there are also some non-science fiction writers that, that have influenced me a great deal, uh, notably uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, who wrote brilliant and uh, ironic short stories, uh, Herman Melville, um, <laughs> and uh, also uh, uh, Nathaniel West, who was a satirical writer in the 1930s uh, that, that really uh, knocked me out when I read him the first time. Which book by another author do you wish you'd written? Once again, it's hard to pick one book. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, uh, you know, and it's sort of embarrassing to admit some of the ones. So for instance, I would, I wish I'd written Moby Dick. Okay, uh, one of the classics of literature. It's kind of silly to say that. Uh, a wonderful book that people don't know. Uh, His Monkey Wife by John Collier, a Brit writer. Uh, 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 I really uh, wish I'd written that. Uh, 
The Fifth Head of Cerberus by um, Gene Wolfe. Uh, Sarah Canary by Karen Joy Fowler. I wish I'd written that book. And um, um, one other probably would be uh, Was by Jeff Ryman, uh, which is a, a wonderful book. I, I wish I'd written that. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? That's a that's a interesting question. I uh, <laughs> I might ask uh, I, playfully, uh, uh, what how firm a grasp do you have on reality? <laughs> but uh, but actually, I, I think I thought about it a little bit. Uh, I would ask this question. I would ask, are you an adversary of the world or are you its ally? Uh, it seems to me science fiction writers are, are in a kind of complicated position as regards the world as it exists. You know, are we against it or are we for it? Or um, um, I don't know. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? I write science fiction because I'm good at it. Uh, also, I like the strangeness of science fiction and fantasy, uh, the way it can can do things that you can't do in uh, realistic fiction. I also like some of the, I guess you call it the strictures of genre fiction, the fact there are certain patterns or rules or or uh, in science fiction, there are all these. Uh, uh, there's this history of how do you write a time travel story? How do you write an uh, alien uh, uh, context story? And and I like to play against those those structures. Uh, that that is interesting to me. So it's sort of a, a contradiction. On one hand, I like science fiction because it's original. On the other hand, I like it because uh, it has these forms that you can play against. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Making it real, uh, not resorting to cliches and worn out, worn out moves, or we're making those cliches and worn out moves uh, interesting again. Does it get any easier? I would say no. <laughs> I don't think it gets easier. I think once you when you start out, you're blissfully ignorant of how hard it can be to write it well, and so you just go off and write it, and that's a good thing. You, that ignorance, I think, is necessary. Then you get older and you realize uh, how hard it can be, or how many different things you 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 you, uh, you want to do well. Uh, then it can get uh, it can get really difficult. Uh, you don't want to repeat yourself. You want to do something original. Um, you know, you can get some some arthritis of the mind as you get older. Describe your daily working day. Okay, so my working day is one thing is I'm a college uh, teacher uh, for, as a profession, so most of my days are working days at school. So on those days, I get up, take my daughter to high school, I go to work, I have office hours, I have meetings, I do paperwork, I prepare cl- to teach classes, I teach the classes, I do administrative work, I grade papers, I go grocery shopping when I'm done, <laughs> I have errands, I come home, I collapse, uh, I watch TV or I go to sleep. Uh, on, on writing days, which I have a couple of a week, I get up, I'll ride my bicycle to get some exercise, I'll, I'll come home and take a shower, I'll turn on my computer and waste time with email and surfing the web, as I think everyone on the planet does now. Uh, eventually, I'll, I'll get some writing done. And then in the evening, I'll, I'll try to relax, see friends, uh, you know, go out to movies, stuff like that. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? 
well, mostly my research is pretty boring, you know, library research, uh, 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 reading books, finding out about things. But actually, one time I did, uh, I did do the, I snuck back by myself into a lava tube uh, against the tourist rules on the island of Santa Cruz in the Galapagos Islands uh, in order to see what it was like inside of, of a lava tube for reference to these lunar stories I, I've been writing. A uh, lava tube is, you know, it's a cave that is created when there's a, you know, a lava, a volcanic lava that runs underground. It doesn't break the surface, but it, it runs through there, and then it, it eventually empties out, and you have this very interesting sort of serpentine cave uh, underground that, that uh, uh, is, there, are, there are many lava tubes on the, on the moon, and uh, they would be ideal places for colonies because they're sort of already underground and shielded from the surface. Uh, you could probably uh, pressurize them. And so I actually went to this. I actually saw a lava tube and was able to walk through it. But I, I, I didn't get enough of it on the tourist trip, so I snuck back in there after they'd sort of closed the entrance and, and got back in and poked around there. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from any, any other genres? I think it is different. Uh, it has its own uh, rules, and, and uh, if you want to do it well, you should know the history and you should try to respect the, respect the traditions and, and uh, the, uh, you know, uh, make the science work. Uh, there's a lot of things, that, you know, to, to write good science fiction uh, it takes a little, uh, a little effort. Uh, and and people who don't write science fiction who just come in and, and and write it, I think a lot of times they don't do a very good job of it. Uh, on the other hand, I I don't think it's different, completely different. I think a lot of the things that any good writer has to do, a science fiction writer has to do, you have to create your characters convincingly. You have to describe the background in, in sufficient detail that it seems real. You have to plot well. You have to uh, have motivations make sense. Um, all those things that a regular uh, writer has to do, a science fiction writer has to also do. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Uh, at its best, science fiction makes you realize that things change. And the way things are now is not the way they have been in the past or what they will be in the future. It's very easy for people who, who are wrapped up in the present not to realize that fact. Uh, it sort of leads to the idea that social reality is constructed the way things are now is something that people invented, and 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 uh, the way they persist is by people believing in them. And if they were to change their beliefs, as they often often do, or at least sometimes do, then everything everything's up for grabs. Everything can change. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Many times. <laughs> I don't know how to say what. I mean, by science fiction, I know what you mean. I mean, when you read it, uh, sometimes you read you know you read boring books that have done things before that are not well written and, and that, that can be disappointing uh, but science fiction is a genre I think sometimes it's a little uh, sort of like a club that doesn't like uh, you know to be uh, uh, to associate with other things I think that, that, that the kind of insularity can be, can be uh, 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 detrimental on the other hand you know there's something to be said for the the uh, the mutant atmosphere of science fiction. So, I, 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 as, as with many of these things, I'm conflicted. I have, I have contradictory opinions. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I'd say definitely yes. 
I think uh, the big thing is as long as there are new writers, uh, it's hard for writers who are getting older, like me, to uh, to not uh, uh, fall into patterns or get hidebound. I mean, we try hard, and uh, one of the things I really like is that when new writers come in, they they sort of shake the, the temple, shake the walls of the temple, and will uh, deliberately assault certain pieties, and that's a that's a good thing. So uh, I do think there's definitely life to the old girl, uh, even if uh, you know she's been around a while. John Kessel, thank you very much. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Which leads very nicely for me to say the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Every Angel is Terrifying by John Kessel Railroad watched Bobby Lee grab Grandmother's body under the armpits and drag her up the other side of the ditch. Why don't you tell him, Hiram? he said. Hiram took off his coat, skidded down into the ditch after Bobby Lee and got a hold of the old lady's legs. Together, he and Bobby Lee lugged her across the field towards the woods. Her broken blue hat was still pinned to her head, which lolled against Bobby Lee's shoulder. The woman's face grinned lopsidedly all the way down into the shadow of the trees. Railroad carried the cat over to the Studebaker. It occurred to him that he didn't know the cat's name, and now that the entire family was dead, he never would. It was a calico, gray-striped with a broad white face and an orange nose. "'What's your name, Puss Puss?' he whispered, scratching it behind the ears. The cat purred. One by one, Railroad went round and rolled up the windows of the car. A fracture zigzagged across the windshield, and the front passenger's vent window was shattered. He stuffed Hiram's coat into the vent window hole. Then he put the cat inside the car and shut the door. The cat put its front paws up on the dashboard and, watching him, gave a pantomime meow. Railroad pushed up his glasses and stared off toward the wood line where Bobby Lee and Hiram had taken the bodies. The place was hot and still, silence broken only by a bird song from somewhere up in the embankment behind him. He squinted up into the cloudless sky, only a couple of hours of sun left. He rubbed the spot on his shoulder where the grandmother had touched him. Somehow he had wrenched it when he jerked away from her. The last thing that the grandmother had said picked at him. You're one of my own children. The old lady had looked familiar, but she didn't look anything like his mother. But maybe his father had sown some wild oats in the old days. Railroad knew he had. Could the old lady have been his mother? For real? It would explain why the woman who had raised him, the sweetest of women could have been saddled with a son as bad as he was. The idea caught in his head. He wished he had had the sense to ask the grandmother a few questions. The old woman might have been sent to tell him the truth. When Hiram and Bobby Lee came back, they found Railroad leaning under the hood of the car. "'What do we do now, boss?' Bobby Lee asked. "'Police could be here any minute,' Hiram said. Blood was smeared on the leg of his khaki pants. "'Somebody might have heard the shots.' Railroad pulled himself out from under the hood. Onlyest thing we gotta worry about now, Hiram, is how we get this radiator to stop leaking. You find a tire iron and straighten out this here fan. Bobby Lee, you get the belt off in the other car. It took longer than the half hour Hiram had estimated to get the people's Studebaker back on the road. By the time they did, it was twilight, and the red dirt road was cast in the shadows of the pine woods. They pushed the stolen Hudson they'd been driving off into the trees and got into the Studebaker. Railroad gripped the wheel of the car, and they had bounced down the dirt road towards the main highway. Hat pushed back on his head, Hiram went through the dead man's wallet. 
while in the back seat, Bobby Lee had the cat on his lap and was scratching it under the chin. Kitty, 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 he murmured. Sixty-eight dollars, Hiram said. With the twenty-two from the wife's purse, that makes ninety bucks. He turned around and handed a wad full of bills to Bobby Lee. Get rid of that damn cat, he said. Want me to hold yours for you? he asked Railroad. Railroad reached over, took the bills, and stuffed them into the pocket of the yellow shirt with the bright blue parrots that had belonged to the husband who had been driving the car. Bailey Boy, the grandmother had called him. Railroad's shoulder twinged. The car shuddered. The wheels had been knocked out of kilter when it rolled. If he tried pushing past fifty, it would shake itself right off the road. Railroad felt the warm weight of his pistol inside of his belt against his belly. Bobby Lee hummed tunelessly in the back seat. Hiram was quiet, fidgeting, looking out at the dark trees. He tugged his battered coat out of the bent window, tried to shake some of the wrinkles out of it. You oughtn't use a man's coat without saying to him, he grumbled. Bobby Lee spoke up. He didn't want the cat to get away. Hiram sneezed. Will you throw that damn animal out the window? She never hurt you none, Bobby Lee said. Railroad said nothing. He had always imagined that the world was slightly unreal, that he was meant to be the citizen of some other place. His mind was a box. Outside the box was that world of distraction, amusement, annoyance. Inside the box, his real life went on, the struggle between what he knew and what he didn't know. He had a way of acting, polite, detached, because that way he wouldn't be bothered. When he was bothered, he got mad. When he got mad, bad things happened. He had always been prey to remorse, but now he felt it more fully than he had since he was a boy. He hadn't paid enough attention. He pegged the old lady as a hypocrite and had gone back into his box, thinking her just another fool from that puppet world. But that moment of her touching him, she'd wanted to comfort him, and he shot her. What was it the old woman had said? You could be honest if you'd only try. Think how wonderful it would be to settle down and live a comfortable life and not have to think about somebody chasing you all the time. He knew she was only saying that to save her life, but that didn't mean it couldn't also be a message. Outside the box, Hiram asked, What was all that yammer-yammer with the grandmother about Jesus? We doing all the killing while you yammer-yammer? He did shoot the old lady, Bobby Lee said. And made us carry her off to the woods, when if he'd have waited, she could have walked there like the others. We're the ones getting blood on our clothes. Railroad said quietly, You don't like the way things are going, son? Hiram twitched against the seat like he was itchy between the shoulder blades. I ain't saying that. I just want out of this state. We're going to Atlanta. In Atlanta, we can get lost. Going to get me a girl, Bobby Lee said. They got more cops in Atlanta than the rest of the state put together, Hiram said. In Florida, without taking his eyes off the road, Railroad snapped his right hand across the bridge of Hiram's nose. Hiram jerked, more startled than hurt, and his hat tumbled off into the back seat. Bobby Lee laughed and handed Hiram his hat. It was after 11 o'clock when they hit the outskirts of Atlanta. Railroad pulled into a diner, the sweet spot. Red brick and asbestos-shingled roof, the air smelling of cigarettes and pork barbecue. Hiram rubbed some dirt from the lot into the stain on his pants leg. Railroad unlocked the trunk and found the dead man's suitcase full of clothes. He carried it in with him. 
On the radio, sitting on the shelf behind the counter, Kitty Wells sang, It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels. Railroad studied the menu front and back, and ordered biscuits and gravy. While they ate, Bobby Lee ran on about girls, and Hiram sat sullenly smoking. Railroad could tell Hiram was getting ready to do something stupid. He didn't need either of them anymore, so, after they finished eating, Railroad left the car keys on the table and took the suitcase into the men's room. He locked the door. He pulled his thirty-eight out of the waistband, put it on the sink, and changed out of the two tight dungarees into some of the dead husband's baggy trousers. He washed his face and hands. He cleaned his glasses on the tail of the parrot shirt, then tucked in the shirt. He stuck his thirty-eight into the suitcase and came out again. Bobby Lee and Hiram were gone, and the car was no longer in the parking lot. The bill on the table, next to Hiram's still smoldering cigarette, was for $6.80. Railroad sat in the booth drinking his coffee. In the window of the diner near the door, a piece of cardboard had been taped up saying, Wanted. Fry Cook. When he was done with the coffee, he untaped the sign and headed to the register. After he paid the bill, he handed the cashier the sign. I'm your man, he said. The cashier called the manager. Mr. Cowthron, this man says he's a cook. Mr. Cowthron was maybe 35 years old. His carrot-red hair stood up in a pompadour like a rooster's comb, and a little belly swelled out over his belt. What's your name? Lloyd Bailey. Lloyd, what experience you have? I can cook anything on this here menu, Railroad said. The manager took him back to the kitchen. Stand aside, shorty the manager said to the tall black male at the griddle. "'Fix me a Denver omelette,' he said to Railroad. Railroad washed his hands, put on an apron, broke two eggs into a bowl. He threw handfuls of chopped onion, green pepper, and diced ham into a skillet. When the onions were soft, he poured the beaten eggs over the ham and vegetables, added salt and cayenne pepper. When he slid the finished omelette onto a plate, the manager bent down over it as if he were inspecting a paint job on a used car. He straightened up. Pays $30 a week. Be here at 6 in the morning. Out in the lot, Railroad set down his bag and looked around. Cicadas buzzed in the hot city night. Around the corner from the diner, he'd noticed a big Victorian house with a sign on the porch. Rooms for rent. He was about to start walking when, out of the corner of his eye, he caught a movement by the trash barrel next to the chain-link fence. He peered into the gloom and saw the cat trying to leap up to the top to get at the garbage. He went over, held out his hand. The cat didn't run. It sniffed him, butted its head against his hand. He picked it up, cradled it under his arm, and carried it and the bag to the rooming house. Under dense oaks, it was a big tan clapboard mansion with green shutters and hanging baskets of begonias on the porch and a green porch swing. The thick, oval-leaded glass of the oak door was beveled around the edge, the brass of the handle dark with age. The door was unlocked. His heart jumped a bit at the opportunity it presented. At the same time, he wanted to warn the proprietor against such foolishness. Off to one side of the entrance was a table with a doily, vase and dried flowers. On the other, a sign beside a door said, Manager. Railroad knocked. After a moment, the door opened, and a woman with the face of an angel opened it. She was not young, perhaps forty, with very white skin and blonde hair, she looked at him, smiled, saw the cat under his arm. "'What a sweet animal,' she said. "'I'd like a room,' he said. "'I'm sorry, we don't cater to pets,' the woman said, not unkindly. 
This here's no pet, ma'am, Railroad said. This here's my only friend in the world. The landlady's name was Miss Graves. The room she rented him was twelve feet by twelve feet, with a single bed, a cherry veneer dresser, a wooden table and chair, a narrow closet, lace curtains on the window, and an old pineapple quilt on the bed. The air smelled sweet. On the wall opposite the bed was a picture in a dime store frame of an empty rowboat floating in an angry gray ocean, the sky overcast, only a single shaft of sunlight in the distance from a sunset that was not in the picture. The room cost ten dollars a week. Despite Mrs. Graves' rule against pets, like magic, she took a shine to Railroad's cat. It was almost as if she'd rented the room to the cat, with Railroad along for the ride. After some consideration, he named the cat Pleasure. She was the most affectionate animal he had ever seen. She wanted to be with him, even when he ignored her. She made him feel wanted. She made him nervous. Railroad fashioned a cat door in the window of his room so that Pleasure could go out and in whenever she wanted, and not be confined to the room when Railroad was at work. The only other residents of the boarding house were Louise Parker, a school teacher, and Charles Foster, a lingerie salesman. Miss Graves cleaned Railroad's room once a week, swept the floors, alternated the quilt every other week with a second one done in a rose pattern that he remembered from his childhood. He worked at the diner from six in the morning when Maisie, the cashier, unlocked until Shorty took over at three in the afternoon. The counter girl was Betsy, and Service, a Negro boy, bussed the tables and washed dishes. Railroad told them to call him Bailey and didn't talk much. When he wasn't working, Railroad spent most of his time at the boarding house or evenings in a small nearby park. Railroad would take the Bible from the drawer in the boarding house table, buy an afternoon newspaper, and carry them with him. Pleasure often followed him to the park. She would lunge after squirrels and shy away from dogs, hissing sideways. Cats liked to kill squirrels, dogs liked to kill cats, but there was no sin in it. Pleasure would not go to hell or heaven. Cats had no souls. The world was full of stupid people like Bobby Lee and Hiram, who lied to themselves and killed without knowing why. Life was a prison. Turn to the right, it was a wall. Turn to the left, it was a wall. Look up, it was a ceiling. Look down, it was a floor. And Railroad had taken out his imprisonment on others. He was not deceived in his own behavior. Railroad did not believe in sin, but somehow he felt it. Still, he was not a dog or a cat. He was a man. You're one of my own children. There was no reason why he had to kill people. He only wished he'd never had to deal with any Hiram's and Bobby Lee's anymore. He gazed across the park at the Ipana toothpaste sign painted on the wall of the Piggly Wiggly. Whiter than white. Pleasure crouched at the end of the bench, her haunches twitching as she watched a finch hop across the sidewalk. Railroad picked her up, rubbed his cheeks against her whiskers. Pleasure, I tell you what, he whispered. Let's make us a deal. You save me from Bobby Lee and Hiram, and I'll never kill anybody again. The cat looked at him with its clear yellow eyes. Railroad sighed. He put the cat down. He leaned back on the bench and opened the newspaper. Beneath the fold on the front page, he read, Escaped convicts killed in wreck. Valdosta, 
Two escaped convicts and an unidentified female passenger were killed Tuesday when the late model stolen automobile they were driving struck a bridge abutment while being pursued by state police. The deceased convicts, Hiram Leroy Burgett, 31, and Bobby Lee Ross, 21, escaped June 23rd while being transported to the state hospital for the criminally insane for a psychological evaluation. A third escapee, Ronald Rule Pickens, 47, is still at large. The lunch rush was petering out. There were two people at the counter and four booths were occupied, and Railroad had set a BLT and an order of fried chicken with collards up on the shelf when Maisie came back into the kitchen and called the manager. Police wants to talk to you, Mr. C. Railroad peeked out from behind the row of hanging order slips. A man in a suit sat at the counter, sipping sweet tea. Catherine went out to talk to him. Two castaways on a raft, Betsy called to Railroad. The man spoke with Catherine for a few minutes, showed him a photograph. Catherine shook his head, nodded, shook his head again. They laughed. Railroad eyed the back door of the diner, but turned back to the grill. By the time he had the toast up and the eggs fried, the man was gone. Catherine stepped back into his office without saying anything. At the end of the shift, he pulled Railroad aside. Lloyd, he said, I need to speak with you. Railroad followed him into the cubbyhole he called his office. Catherine sat behind the cluttered metal desk and picked up a letter from the top layer of trash. I just got this here note from Social Security saying that your number you gave is not valid. He looked up at Railroad, his china blue eyes unreadable. Railroad took off his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose with his thumb and forefinger. He didn't say anything. I suppose it's just some mix-up, Catherine said. Same as that business with the detective this afternoon. Don't you worry about it. Thank you, Mr. Catherine. One other thing before you go, Lloyd. Did I say your salary was 30 a week? I meant 25. Is that okay with you? Whatever you say, Mr. Catherine. And I think, in order to encourage trade, we'll start opening at 5. I'd like you to pick up the extra hour, starting Monday. Railroad nodded. Is that all? That's it, Lloyd. Catherine seemed suddenly to enjoy calling Railroad Lloyd, rolling the name over his tongue and watching for his reaction. Thanks for being such a Christian employee. Railroad went back to his room in the rooming house. Pleasure meowed for him, and when he sat on the bed, hopped into his lap. But Railroad just stared at the picture of the rowboat on the opposite wall. After a while, the cat hopped onto the window sill and out through her door onto the roof. Only a crazy person would use the knowledge that a man was a murderer in order to cheat that man out of his pay. How could he know that Railroad wouldn't kill him, or run away, or do both? Lucky for Catherine that Railroad had made his deal with pleasure. But now, he didn't know what to do. If the old lady's message was from God, then maybe this was his first test. Nobody said being good was supposed to be easy. Nobody said just because Railroad was turning to good, everybody he met forever after would be good. Railroad had asked Pleasure to save him from Bobby Lee and Hiram, not Mr. Calthron. He needed guidance. He slid open the drawer of the table. Beside the Bible was his thirty-eight. He flipped open the cylinder, checked to see that all the chambers were loaded, and put it back into the drawer. He took out the Bible and opened it at random. The first verse his eyes fell on was from Deuteronomy. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. There was a knock at the door. 
Railroad looked up. Yes. Mr. Bailey? It was Miss Graves. I thought you might like some tea. Keeping his finger in the Bible to mark his page, Railroad got up and opened the door. Mrs. Graves stood there with a couple of tall glasses beaded with sweat on a tray. That's mighty kind to you, Miss Graves. Would you like to come in? Thank you, Mr. Bailey. She set the tray down on the table, gave him a glass. It was like nectar. Is it sweet enough? It's perfect, ma'am. She wore a yellow print dress with little flowers on it. Every movement showed a calm he had not seen in a woman before, and her gray eyes exuded compassion, as if to say, I know who you are, but that doesn't matter. They sat down, he on the bed, she on the chair. She saw the Bible in his hand. I find many words of comfort in the Bible. I can't say as I find much comfort in it, ma'am. Too many bloody deeds. But many acts of goodness. You said a true word. Sometimes I wish I could live in a world of goodness, she smiled. But this world is good enough. Did she really think that? Since Eve ate the apple, ma'am, it's a world of good and evil. How can goodness make up for the bad? That's a mystery to me. She sipped her tea. Of course it's a mystery. That's the point. The point is, something's always after you, deserve it or not. What a sad thought, Mr. Bailey. Yes, am from minute to minute we fade away. Only way to get to heaven is to die. After Miss Graves left, he sat thinking about her beautiful face. Like an angel. Nice titties, too. And yet he didn't even want to rape her. He would marry her. He would settle down, like the grandmother said. But he would have to get an engagement ring. If he'd been thinking, he could have taken the grandmother's ring. But how was he supposed to know when he'd killed her that he was going to fall in love so soon? He opened the dresser, felt among the dead man's clothes until he found the sock, pulled out his savings. It was only $43. The only help for it was to ask pleasure. Railroad paced the room. It was a long time and Railroad began to worry before the cat came back. The cat slipped silently through the door, lay down on the table, simple as you please, in the wedge of sunlight coming in the window. Railroad got down on his knees, his face level with the tabletop. The cat went, and raised its head. Railroad gazed into her steady eyes. Pleasure, he said. I need to get an engagement ring, and I don't have enough money. Get one for me? The cat watched him. He waited for some sign, and nothing happened. Then, like a dam bursting, a flood of confidence flowed into him. He knew what he would do. The next morning he walked down to the sweet spot, whistling, he spent much of his shift imagining when and how he would ask Mrs. Graves for her hand. Maybe on the porch swing on Saturday night, or at breakfast some morning. He could leave the ring next to his plate and she would find it, with his note, when cleaning the table. Or he could come down to her room in the middle of the night, and he'd ram himself into her in the darkness, make her whimper, then lay the perfect diamond on her breast. At the end of the shift he took a beefsteak from the diner's refrigerator as an offering to pleasure, but when he entered his room, the cat was not there. He left the meat wrapped in butcher paper in the kitchen downstairs, then went back up and changed into Bailey Boy's baggy suit. At the corner, he took the bus downtown and walked into the first jewelry store he saw. He made the woman show him several diamond engagement rings. Then the phone rang, and when the woman went to answer it, he pocketed a ring and walked out. 
No clerk in her right mind should be so careless, but it went exactly as he had imagined it, as easy as breathing. That night he had a dream. He was alone with Miss Graves, and she was making love to him, but as he moved against her, he felt the skin of her full breast deflate and wrinkle beneath his hand, and he found he was making love to the dead grandmother, her face grinning the same vacant grin it had when Hiram and Bobby Lee had hauled her into the woods. Railroad woke in terror. Pleasure was sitting on his chest, her face an inch from his, purring loud as a diesel. He snatched up the cat in both hands and hurled her across the room. She hit the wall with a thump, then fell to the floor, claws skittering on the hardwood. She scuttled for the window, through the door, onto the porch roof. It took him ten minutes for his heart to slow down, and then he could not sleep. Someone is always after you. That day in the diner, when Railroad was taking a break, sitting on a stool in front of the window fan sipping some ice water, Catherine came out of the office and put his hand on his shoulder, the one that still hurt occasionally. Hot work, ain't it, boy? Yes, sir. Railroad was ten or twelve years older than Catherine. What's this world coming to? Maisie said to nobody in particular. She had the newspaper open on the counter and was scanning the headlines. You read what it says here about some man robbing a diamond ring right out from under the nose of a clerk at Miriam's jewelry? I saw that already, Mr. Calthron said, and after a moment, white fellow, wasn't it? It was, sighed Maisie. Must be some trash from the backwoods. Some of those poor people have not had the benefit of a Christian upbringing. They'll catch him. Men like that always get caught. Catherine leaned in the doorway of his office, arms crossed above his belly. Maisie, Catherine said, did I tell you Lloyd here is the best short-order cook we've had since 1947? The best white short-order cook? I heard you say that. I mean, makes you wonder where he was before he came here. Was he short-order cooking all around Atlanta? Seems like we would have heard, don't it? Come to think, Lloyd never told me much about where he was before he showed up that day. You ever say much to you, Maisie? Can't say as I recall. You can't recall because he hasn't. What you say, Lloyd? Why is that? No time for conversation, Mr. Catherine. No time for conversation? You carrying some resentment, Lloyd? We ain't paying you enough? I didn't say that. Because if you don't like it here, I'd be unhappy to lose the best wife short order cook that I had since 1947. Railroad put down his empty glass and slipped on his paper hat. I can't afford to lose this job. And you don't mind my saying, Mr. Catherine, you'd come to regret it if I was forced to leave. Weren't you listening, Lloyd? Isn't that what I just said? Yes, you did. Now, maybe we ought to quit bothering Miss Maisie with our talk and get back to work. I like a man that enjoys his job, Catherine said, slapping Railroad on the shoulder again. I'd have to be suicidal to make a good worker like you leave. Do I look suicidal, Lloyd? No, you don't look suicidal, Mr. Catherine. I see pleasure all the time going down the block to pick at the trash by the sweet spot, Miss Graves told him as they sat on the front porch swing that evening. That cat could get hurt if you let it out so much. It's a busy street. Foster had gone to a ball game, and Louise Parker was visiting her sister in Chattanooga, so they were alone. It was the opportunity Railroad had been waiting for. I don't want to keep her a prisoner, he said. The chain of the swing creaked as they rocked slowly back and forth. He could smell her lilac perfume. The curve of her thigh beneath her print dress caught the light from the front room coming through the window. 
You're a man who spent much time alone, aren't you? She said. So mysterious. He had his hand in his pocket, the ring in his fingers. He hesitated. A couple walking down the sidewalk nodded at them. He couldn't do it out here, where the world might see. Miss Graves, would you come up to my room? I have something I need to show you. She did not hesitate. I hope there's nothing wrong. Uh, no, ma'am. Uh, it's just something I'd like to rearrange. He opened the door for her and followed her up the stairs. The clock in the hall ticked loudly. He opened the door to his room and ushered her in, closed the door behind them. When she turned to face him, he fell to his knees. He held up the ring in both hands, his offering. Miss Graves, I want you to marry me. She looked at him kindly, her expression calm. The silence stretched. She reached out. He thought she was going to take the ring, but instead she touched his wrist. I can't marry you, Mr. Bailey. Why not? Why, I hardly know you. Railroad felt dizzy. You could sometime. I'll never marry again, Mr. Bailey. It's not you. Not him. It was never him. Had never been him. His knees hurt from the hardwood floor. He looked at the ring, lowered his hands, clasped in his fist. She moved her hand from his wrist to his shoulder, squeezed it. A knife of pain ran down his arm. Without standing, he punched Miss Graves in the stomach. She gasped and fell back into the bed. He was on her in a second, one hand over her mouth while he ripped her dress open from the neck. She struggled, and he pulled the pistol out from behind his back and held it to her head. She lay still. "'Don't you stop me now,' he muttered. He tugged his pants down and did what he wanted. How ladylike it was of her to keep so silent. Much later, lying on the bed, eyes dreamily focused on the light fixture in the center of the ceiling, it came to him what had bothered him about the grandmother. She'd ignored the fact that she was going to die. She would have been a good woman, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life, he told Bobby Lee. And that was true. But then, for that last moment, she became a good woman. The reason was that, once Railroad convinced her she was going to die, she could forget about it. In the end, when she reached out to him, there was no thought in her mind about death, about the fact that he had killed her son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren and was soon going to kill her. All she wanted was to comfort him. She didn't even care if he couldn't be comforted. She was living in that exact instant, with no memory of the past or regard for the future, out of the instinct of her soul and nothing else. Like the cat. Pleasure lived that way all of the time. The cat didn't know about Jesus' sacrifice, about angels and devils. The cat looked at him and saw what was there. He raised himself on his elbows. Miss Graves lay very still beside him, her blonde hair spread across the pineapple quilt. He felt her neck for a pulse. It was dark night now, the whine of insects in the oaks outside the window. The rush of traffic on the cross street drifted in on the hot air. Quietly, Railroad slipped out into the hall and down to Foster's room. He put his ear to the door and heard no sound. He came back to his own room, wrapped Mrs. Graves in the quilt, and, as silently as he could, dragged her into his closet. He closed the door. Railroad heard purring and saw Pleasure sitting on the table, watching. "'God damn you! God damn you to hell!' he said to the cat. But before he could grab her, the calico had darted out the window." 
He figured it out. The idea of marrying Miss Graves had only been a stage in the subtle revenge being taken on him by the dead grandmother, through the cat. The wish's pleasure had granted were the bait. The nightmare had been a warning, but he hadn't listened. He rubbed his sore shoulder. The old lady's gesture, like a mustard seed, had grown to be a great crow-filled tree in Railroad's heart. A good trick the devil had played on him. Now, no matter how he reformed himself, he could not get rid of what he had done. It was hot and still, not a breath of air, as if the world were being smothered in a fever blanket, a milky white sky. The kitchen of the sweet spot was as hot as the furnace of hell. Beneath his shirt, Railroad's sweat ran down to the slick warm pistol slid into his belt. Railroad was fixing a stack of buttermilk pancakes when the detective walked in. The detective walked over to the counter and sat down on one of the stools. Maisie was not at the counter. She was probably in the ladies' room. The detective took a look around, then plucked a menu from behind the napkin holder in front of him and started reading. On the radio, Hank Williams was singing, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Quietly, Railroad untied his apron and slipped out of the back door. In the alley near the trash barrels, he looked out over the lot. He was about to hop the chain-link fence when he saw Catherine's car stopped at the light on the corner. Railroad pulled out his pistol, crouched behind a barrel, and aimed at the space in the lot where Catherine usually parked. He felt something bump against his leg. It was pleasure. Don't you cross me now, Railroad whispered, pushing the animal away. The cat came back, put her front paws on his thigh, purring. Damn you! You owe me, you little demon, he hissed. Then he let the gun drop, looked down at the cat. Pleasure looked up at him. Meow. What do you want? You want me to stop, do you? Then make it go away. Make it so I never killed nobody. Nothing happened. It was just a fucking animal. In a rage, he dropped the gun and seized the cat in both hands. She twisted in his grasp, hissing. You know what it's like to hurt in your heart? Railroad tore open his shirt and pressed Pleasure against his chest. Feel it! Feel it beating there! Pleasure squirmed and clawed, hatching his chest with a web of scratches. You owe me! You owe me! Railroad was shouting now. Make it go away! Pleasure finally twisted out of his grasp. The cat fell, rolled, and scurried away, running right under Catherine's car as it pulled into the lot. With a little bump, the car's left front tire ran over her. Catherine jerked the car to a halt. Pleasure howled, still alive, writhing, trying to drag herself away on its paws. Her back was broken. Railroad looked at the fence and looked back. He ran over to Pleasure and knelt down. Catherine got out of the car. Railroad tried to pick up the cat, but she hissed at him. Her sides fluttered with rapid breathing, her eyes clouded. She rested her head on the gravel. Railroad had trouble breathing. He looked up from his crouch to see that Maisie and some customers had come out of the diner. Among them was the detective. I didn't mean to do that, Lloyd, Catherine said. It just ran out in front of me. He paused a moment. Jesus Christ, Lloyd, what happened to your chest? Railroad picked up the cat in his bloody hands. Nobody ever gets away with nothing, he said. I'm ready to go now. Go where? Back to prison. What are you talking about? Me, Hiram, and Bobby Lee killed all those folks in the woods and took their car. This was their cat. 
What people? Bailey Boy and his mother and his wife and his kids and his baby. The detective pushed back his hat and scratched his head. Y'all best come in here and we'll talk this thing over. They went into the diner. Railroad would not let them take pleasure from him until they gave him a corrugated cardboard box to put the body in. Maisie brought him a towel to wipe his hands, and Railroad told the detective, whose name was Vernon Scott Shaw, all about the state hospital for the criminally insane, and the hearse-like Hudson, and the family they'd murdered in the backwoods. Mostly he talked about the grandmother and the cat. Shaw sat there and listened soberly. At the end he folded up his notebook and said, "'That's quite a story, Mr. Bailey.' But we caught the people that did that killing, and it ain't you. What do you mean? I know what I'd done. Another thing. You don't think I'd know if there was some murderer loose in the penitentiary? There isn't anyone escaped. What were you doing here last week, asking questions? I was having myself some pancakes and coffee. I didn't make this up. So you say. But seems to me, Mr. Bailey, you've been standing over a hot stove too long. Railroad didn't say anything. He felt as if his heart was about to break. Mr. Catherine told him he might as well take the morning off and get some rest. He would man the griddle himself. Railroad got unsteadily to his feet, took the box containing Pleasure's body, and tucked it under his arm. He walked out of the diner. He went back to the boarding house. He climbed the steps. Mr. Foster was in the front room reading the newspaper. "'Morning, Bailey,' he said. "'What you got there?' My cat got killed. No, sorry to hear that. You seen Miss Graves this morning? He asked. Not yet. Railroad climbed the stairs, walking slowly down the hall to his room. He entered. Dust motes danced in the sunlight coming through the window. The ocean rowboat was no darker than it had been the day before. He set the dead cat down next to the Bible on the table. The pineapple quilt was no longer on the bed. Now it was the rose. He reached into his pocket and felt the engagement ring. The closet door was closed. He went to it, put his hand on the doorknob. He turned it and opened the door. Don't forget, copyright is John Kessel. John, thank you so much for that. And thank you for Starship Sova's interrogations. It was really nice to have a chat with you. That story was narrated by Jeff Michelli. Jeff's done a number of stories for Starship Sova. He did the Paolo Bajiglubi story, The Gambler, as well, which is up for a Nebula Award nomination. And he also did that Memory Dog by Kathleen Ann Goonan as well, if you remember that story. Jeff is a computer security and forensic geek living in South Louisiana. He does voiceovers for commercials, podcasts and the like. Spends much of his time playing around with home automation gadgets and chasing. I think it's now, his daughter's now two year old as well, maybe even three. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for a fine narration. Get some more narrations of Jeff as well. Thank you so much. So next up is, and last but last but by no means least, we have Diane Severson with a little fact article. Transcriber editorial. Diane. Hello there, Sofa Nuts. I'm Diane Severson, or Diva Diane, as some of you might know me from the interwebs. I used to do a great many things on the Starship sofa. I used to narrate stories regularly. Then it was just poetry I recorded most often. You used to be able to find me on the forums every day. 
you can hear me sing on two shows, one with Kiran and the other the Christmas special from the year before last. I was one of the original members of the Roundtable Discussions, the precursor to the now-defunct Sofanauts show, on which I was also a guest, mostly because I visited Tony at his home on recording day last year. But that's all in the past now, and it seems also for the foreseeable future. Even listening to the Starship Sofa seems to be a hit-or-miss thing these days. Why, you ask? Well, I had a baby about six months ago, and... <laughs> need I say more? The first three months were great for my podcast listening. Being strapped to the couch with baby attached helped me catch up and keep up with Oral Delights and the Sofa Nuts. I heard Tony's call for volunteers to transcribe the old shows when Dante was about three months old. I thought, perfect! It should be really easy to sit down for a few minutes a day and transcribe a show. Ha! <laughs> and those that have children will grin, I'm sure. Especially the women. I'll let you know... Over the months, I've thought about it a lot. Ah, today I'll do some transcribing. And then it never happened. Mostly because getting to my study, sitting down, and getting set up was the biggest hurdle. Then it took me about an hour to transcribe the first five minutes, and 45 for the next five minutes of the show, and that's where I stagnated. If it had only been technical difficulties, I might have overcome them, but trying to decipher what Tony and Kiran were saying with their Geordie accents, interrupting one another, laughing, etc., it just took too much time. So, I give up. For the time being, anyway. I'm not the only one. At least one other transcriber broke under the pressure. But I plan to help proofread, because I can do that from my iPhone. And I'll be recording some poetry in the near future, because that, dear Sofa Nuts, is much easier than transcribing those early shows. There you go, you see, dropping like flies on the transcriber project. I'll get you. I'll try and get another little update by one of the team just to give you, let you know what's happening over there as well. It's all, it's getting, it's getting close now. You know, kind of the drafts what have kind of made it are there, and we're in like in the proofing stage there now. So it won't be long. We'll be heating up more. I'll be actually bringing on more people and, and hopefully getting chats with them as well. Let you know how that's going. So that is Starship Sova's Oral Delight, 130. The week that was, or the week after, Starship Sova became the first podcast to be nominated for a Hugo Award, 2010. Fabulous, <laughs> careful stories, young ones listening. <laughs> Fabulous time for Starship Sova. Does it get any better? Can we take it to the next ultimate level and win a Hugo Award? Who can tell? But for now, I am one happy chappy. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three.